this is chapter six and it focuses a lot uh, on dhyana yoga on meditation but uh, creating a bridge from everything that we've been talking about so far <laughs> which is what which has been action inaction non-action um, it's a theme krishna won't let go of very easily and so the verse first verse of this chapter states the blessed lord said the true renunciate and the true yogi are those who perform dutiful actions without desiring their fruits not those who eschewing self-offering act with ego motivation nor those who in the name of renunciation eschew action now that eschew word in there throws us off um, it, it means to avoid to intentionally avoid it's a very conscious act there so Krishna is starting off this chapter with two basic terms that he's addressing us as the renunciate and the yogi and he says the true renunciate and the true yogi are those who perform he's been saying this again and again perform dutiful actions without desiring their fruits so a renunciate again is not somebody who's not acting nor is a yogi one who is not acting but what is our action and the key word here is dutiful actions now there are two realities to duty one is of course that which is our dharma that which is our responsibility but duty also means purposeful actions every action a yogi and a renunciate offers is very conscious very purposeful it's not just for the sake of it's not just out of habit everything that he does is building towards something that he is aspiring for and for each of us that could be different of course in this particular context we're talking about freedom we're talking about um, uh, liberation from ego bondage but throughout the day we can create you know what are my dutiful actions today what is it at the end of the day i want to experience we've talked about using the eight aspects of god be it love wisdom joy peace calmness light and sound and making them kind of uh, temporarily or daily goals every day it's like today i want to feel joy what's it going to take what actions am i going to have to perform or even you know, an affirmation affirmate it i mean just anything we do it's an affirmation it's meditation it's kindness it's helping somebody it's thinking about something i mean it's it's all action mm -hmm. action here of course isn't just you know something that i'm doing with my hands or outwardly it's wherever my energy goes that's what i'm acting towards and both as a renunciate and here he's establishing from the very beginning that renunciation forms a major part of that the renunciate and the yogi is he who performs dutiful action without desiring the fruits of action we don't need to go into that we've been hammering that point or at least trying somehow to get behind that thought as much as we can and he says and it's not those who so he's also establishing who who the yogi and the renunciate are not which is not somebody who avoids intentionally avoids self-offering 
because we talked about how action that does not have any expectation behind it is best performed as an offering. If we offer it and say, God, this is for you, then it's easier for us not to hold any desire towards the fruit because we're giving it, we're handing it off. So somebody who A, does avoids making his actions an, an offering, but acts with ego motivation. So one is, if you're acting, but you're acting with ego motivation, then you're neither a renunciate nor a yogi, or he who in the name of renunciation completely avoids action altogether. He too is not a renunciate or a yogi. So that's what we're establishing going in. We're going to have to act. We're going to have to put energy out. We're going to try our best to make sure that there's purpose behind every action. And then in addition, we're going to try to make sure that every action we offer, we try our best not to get too hungover or too desirous, too expectant of what that action will bring us. Understand, O Pandava Arjuna, that what the scriptures call sannyas or renunciation is the same thing as yoga. Indeed, without renunciation of selfish motive, sankalp, one cannot be a true yogi. Now, to a certain degree, sometimes this may seem contradictory. Renunciation in our minds very much means letting go of something, you know, not doing something. And yoga, in the most simplest sense, means uniting towards something. So Krishna is helping us see that both renunciation and the act of yoga are two sides of the same coin. In the sense, we have to know what it is we're letting go of only because we're very clear of where it is we are wanting to go. What it is I'm trying to unite with. Uh, we talked about this before when we shared Swami Kriyananda creating the Naya Swami order, this new renunciate order for the present age, in which of course one of the main features of course is that householders are just as much kind of both perceived and allowed to live as true renunciates. But more than that, he wanted us to see because for the darker ages of Kali Yuga from which we've just kind of made our exit, renunciation was a very powerful tool because, but the focus there was everything that we had to let go. Therefore, the focus was on the negation of the world. And at that time it was needed because form was so ingrained in us. Consciousness was so generally darkened that you had to really just get away from it all. You had to hide yourself from the world. You had to sequester yourself from the world. But now, rather than continuing that particular form of renunciation, Swamiji wanted us to see renunciation more in terms of where am I heading? So he said, rather than world negating, let us make our renunciation samadhi affirming always aware of where I'm going. And that's where yoga plays such a vital role. But yoga can't just be practiced of, oh, I'm doing this, but I'm also, you know, doing many other things. Yoga is such a purposeful reality. It only comes into play if you're also able to let go of some of the other things. So renunciation and yoga go hand in hand. And this is for our daily lives as well. You want to be successful at something, you're going to have to renounce something else 
in order to strive for that success. You're going to have to renounce maybe your sleep time in order to get up uh, to go out and do something uh, to maybe build your health. You're going to have to renounce junk food if your intention is that I want to live a healthier lifestyle. You're going to have to renounce um, perhaps time with your family if the work that you need to do and the success that you're seeking in your professional life is where your intention at that moment lies. And so you can see at every stage, it doesn't mean that, oh, now I have to renounce my family life because I want to be successful. But while I am achieving this thing, I have to renounce this thing. The moment I now I say, now I want to give time to my family, I have to renounce work. So no matter what we do, if I want to go right, I have to renounce left. And that's an important aspect that we need to tune into because it's two ways that we can look at our spiritual path. We can look at where we are going and we can also look at what we're letting go of in the process. Because as I start set sail, I'm looking for God, naturally things that are not participating on that journey are things that tend to have to be let go of. So that's what Krishna is trying to establish here. Both the sannyasi and the yogi, it's the same path. It's two different ways to approach the same. And it's not just two different ways, but that the two will support one another. Once I know and I start letting go of something, I then have to substitute it. I have to put the energy. I'm not just letting go of junk food for no reason. I also then have to adopt a healthy lifestyle. Just letting go of junk food is the first step. Then introducing healthier food is the second step. Renunciation and yoga go hand in hand. The Muni, who is, the, who is aspiring to the spiritual heights through scientific yoga action, karma, on achieving his goal finds perfect vibrationless peace. So yoga action here, Krishna refers to as karma, which is action. So even the most um, purifying activity is nonetheless action. Meditation is also an action. And so no matter what we think our intention are is to go beyond our karma, we're in fact using karma itself to negate karma. The practice that uh, on the path of Paramahansa Yogananda, on the path of Babaji that we do is Kriya Yoga. And Kriya also comes from the root of kr which is act to act from where karma comes and kriya comes. But the distinction here is kriya is that action that neutralizes karma and just simple karma is that action that will constantly create a reaction which will always have cause and effect and keep us perpetually bound. So as a yogi, again, I have to choose what actions are going to neutralize my karma. And here he says through scientific yoga action, which means there's Scientific here doesn't only mean that there's a science to it, but it also means that there's methodology to it, that there's understanding, that we don't do these things just because, oh, Krishna said I need to do this, so I'm going to do this, but I need to also understand, I need to see the steps involved, I need to understand the method so that I can keep producing and reproducing the results. That's the beauty of science, isn't it? Once somebody's done an experiment, anybody who does the experiment in the same way should get the same results. If they don't get the same results, something was originally wrong with that first experiment.
And so for each of us, when we're looking at scientific approach to spirituality, it's not just understanding how the brain works and, you know, all the E equals MC square and what Einstein said and now what quantum physics is saying. It's saying, can this experiment, can what Krishna is saying, can it be repeated for the same results again and again and again and again, thereby making our spiritual practice scientific. And therefore, we achieve perfect vibrationless peace. And we talked about vibration being that which expresses duality, vibrationless being beyond duality. So this peace that Krishna is talking about is not just the peace that we may feel after we've had a very nice long day and finally I get to relax and say, Ah, this feels so good or I'm on the on a beach and you know nothing's bothering me and that's that's not the peace this peace goes beyond any outward reality and has nothing to do is is not conditioned in any way with your circumstance where that peace is so strong and so firmly established that it continues irrespective and Swami Kriyananda always said and asked of each of us act only until you know that you're able to maintain your inner peace. And this is a wonderful gauge for us because the moment our activity kind of has to encroach on our peace, chances are because peace represents even while we are <laughs> experiencing duality, it represents certain cessation of duality after the waves have kind of relaxed a little bit. But anything that brings those waves back up means that it's creating karma. So you have to kind of play this game, even renouncing that action to that certain degree to say, okay, this is as far as I can do this while maintaining my inner peace. Of course, we're going to have to push beyond it because things very easily affect our inner peace. So it's going to be like, no, I can't do this because it'll affect my peace. I can't do this because it'll affect my peace. Therefore comes the practice of scientific yoga. Because the more I go within and awaken that peace and strengthen that peace, that's how I'm then able to act more and more and more. That's how these great masters do more and more and more. That's how Krishna could go into a battle and be untouched by the battle, yet be directing the entire battle without anybody knowing. Because he's firmly established in that vibrationless peace. He who has overcome attachment not only to sense objects, but to sensory activity, and who has achieved freedom from all ego-motivated planning, is said by the wise to have attained Yoga Rudha, the firm union of soul and spirit. Now we've said this, and Krishna has said this several times over, overcoming attachment, not only to sense objects, which is not only to things, but also to the sensory activity, to the very energy that will go out towards the things. We have to attach ourselves even from that while it is happening. Because we're going to have to act, but we're going to have to withdraw ourselves from the action, watching the action take place through us, because only then are we firmly established in spirit, which means we recognize and see God as the doer through us. First act, then act rightly, then act without the expectation or the desire for the fruits, then act completely offering that activity to God, and finally you get to the point where you then see 
God as the doer. And when you are free from ego-motivated planning, because every action that we put out has the planning means is always hoping or expecting or living in the future. That's what planning suggests here. As long as you are already seeing the action and then looking into the future and seeing what that action ought to give you, there's certain ego motivation involved. So you're gonna to have to be able to step back from that as well. Let man uplift himself by his own effort and let him not debase himself. Indeed, oneself, this is the small self, is his own greatest friend, or if he so chooses, his own greatest enemy. And this is the entire Kurukshetra battle going on. All of my own mental citizens, all aspects of my own consciousness, I have certain that are supporting an upward movement, I have certain that are supporting a downward movement. And this is what Krishna means because he's primarily referring to the flow of energy in the spine. By our own effort, man must uplift himself. So here it's not just, I have offered this activity to you, you know, now you, you have to uplift me. There is still dynamic involvement, which is choice involved in everything that we do. Is this going to uplift me? Is this going to debase me? Is it going to draw my energy down? And every choice you make is whether you're being a friend to your own consciousness or you're being an enemy to your own consciousness. And whether you are feeding and siding with the Pandavas, whether you are feeding and siding with the Kauravas. And moment by moment, action by action, thought by thought, intention by intention, this battle is being played out. Which side is winning depends entirely on which side you are with in that moment. Little skirmishes are being fought. Not the entire battle. The entire battle started when our soul went out and it will end when our soul merges back with God. That's the entire battle. But what's being fought are skirmishes. Daily, every moment, every hour, every time we decide and choose to put our energy in one direction or the other. But by man's effort, will he either uplift himself or debase himself? For him whose lower egoic self has been conquered by the higher soul self, that self is the friend of his lower self. <laughs> if that's confusing to you, don't worry, it's just as confusing to us even as we read it. For him, repeating, whose lower self, egoic self has been conquered by the higher soul self, that self is the friend of his lower self. So it, now he says this, and then in the next line, he makes it even more confusing by saying, the true self, however, <laughs> is not friendly to the false self and, and is in many ways its enemy. So I don't quite know <laughs> what Krishna is saying here, because first he's saying, when the lower self, when our egoic self, when the limited identified self is conquered by the higher soul self, when that little self expands into its infinite nature, that self is a friend to that self. However, this self is not friendly with the lower self 
and is in many ways its enemy. So Krishna is essentially saying both things. This is a friend and this is an enemy. And we have to see it now in the right context. You've got Krishna who is completely impartial, loves absolutely everybody equally, yet is with the Pandavas, against the Kauravas. So in this particular case, Krishna, the high, you know, infinite self, is an enemy to the lower self. Here the lower self especially is represented by Bhishma, the ego identity, and then all the ramifications once you're identified with the limited self, everything else that comes along with it, which represents the Kaurava army. However, once the higher self wins the battle, that means, say when the Pandavas ascend to the throne, the Pandavas will not say, Acha, now I have won and treat the Kauravas badly. They'll be a friend to the Kauravas. They'll lift the Kauravas up as well. They'll allow that same energy that was going down to then now be lifted up to unite with Krishna, to come dine with Krishna, to come celebrate with Krishna. But while the battle is going on, this self has to put itself in opposition to the lower self in order to support our higher tendencies. Which means this for us is when you attune to Krishna, he'll support you in your battle against your lower tendencies. But when you unite with Krishna, then even the lower tendencies are seen only, and this is how masters see themselves, because they also have quirks. You know, the other day we were reading the autobiography and it was talking about how Sri Yukteswar was, you know, uh, favoring this one disciple who nobody else liked. And, and he had this soft spot for this disciple and he, was, he would easily overlook this disciple's uh, shortcomings. While uh, for Yogananda, he was like, for every tiny little mistake he made, he would hammer him. And so you'd wonder, you know, it's like, doesn't this great self-realized master see so clearly this guy is, uh, you know, is useless and this guy is just such a wonderful disciple, shouldn't he be acting accordingly? But the Guru, of course, is playing his own little game, knowing what each disciple needs, knowing what karma they need to work out amongst themselves. And so he uses his own lower tendencies as a friend to play this game out. However, the disciple who's not conquered who the higher self has not yet conquered the lower self, he has to fight the battle and play a game of opposition. So there's opposition as long as you're in the battle. When the battle's won, there's only unity even between your lower and higher selves. And we can play this out on smaller levels as well. Again, trying to attune as much to Krishna and then using even our karma to help overcome karma, to help go beyond it, using even our weaknesses and turning them into strengths if applied correctly and acted upon rightly. The tranquil sage who has conquered the lower egoic self abides in the supreme self. He views with equanimity all dualities, cold and heat, pleasure and pain, praise and blame. And I was thinking about these three things. We've, we've talked about, of course, the seer, uh, the sage, the saint, eventually being able to see everything, all dualities as one. And that is yoga. So yoga is not just the soul uniting with 
with the uh, krishna or with the divine it's also all dualities uniting within you and around you as well in your perceptions of them and so you've got cold and heat which is situations circumstances outward realities they need to come together as one they need to become neutral no circumstance should have power over you you've got pleasure and pain which are inner responses so then your responses also need to become completely neutral in the sense that you're not affected you don't react to anything and then of course praise and blame is people and how our expectations work with people whether they see us favorably or not and that needs to work out so you've got circumstance you've got your own responses and you've got people around you all three aspects constitute our entirety so sometimes you're able to more easily see circumstances as neutral but a person <laughs> comes and really triggers you <laughs> sometimes you're able to hold the greater control over your own inner reactions and responses yet at the same time when the moment something unfavorable happens outwardly the situation shifts then you're unable to do that so we're we're constantly looking from all three perspective circumstance my response and people the yogi who is blissfully absorbed in the wisdom of the self is unknown is known as being unshakably united to spirit unchangeable the controller of his senses he views with equal mind again and again equal mind a clod of earth a stone and a bar of gold and this is going to become you know this is not these aspects of the spiritual path they're actually very hard for us to want to get into none of us want to see we want to see the good things as good things <laughs> you know we're very much interested in experiencing the ah, fun joyful you know even in our inner experiences we want to know these are the experiences that i ought to have um but eventually sooner or later and this is a gradual process but it can be also practiced every day a little bit trying always to see as much as you can everything with an even mind you're going to have to get there eventually because as long as you don't we talked about this over and over again as long as we don't duality has sway over us one way or the other it's going to come back as long as we lean one direction the universe is going to lean back at us in the other direction so uh, for our own benefit and if we want to hasten the process of our spiritual evolution we're going to have to make a certain amount of effort in this direction to be able to watch even mindedly in a neutral sense the world around us and including our own inner responses even as anger is being expressed through us can i watch my anger and my reaction to the anger which actually enhances anger can that at least be neutral just letting that anger pass through me and immediately dissipate rather than work with the anger kind of judge the anger uh, place on the anger an additional expectation of where why it happened why it shouldn't have happened and we just kind of increase and elongate the process that way he is a supreme yogi who gazes equally upon wow that's that's new <laughs> gazes equally upon patrons friends enemies strangers 
peacemakers, those who cause trouble, relatives, the virtuous, and the ungodly. He's pretty much taken the entire spectrum of uh, humanity that you can think of. And now the point is, the supreme yogi needs to be able to gaze equally upon all. And uh, we talked about this once before because Krishna has made this statement several times uh, throughout the Gita that we have covered so far. But we also did mention that while the yogi is able to gaze upon them equally, it does not mean that he responds to them in the same way. That he does not recognize evil. That he does not recognize a person who is virtuous. It's just that in his heart, in his life force, there is no reaction to it. There is no ripple that is caused, which is what is caused in us. And, uh, you know, using especially today, today the one thing I, I see that the world does not have or is completely incapable of is this thing. We have so clearly defined the good from the bad. We have so clearly defined the virtuous from the evil. We have so clearly judged who we consider to be the right or the wrong person. And today that's the energy that we find ourselves in. And because we find ourselves in that energy, you can see the upheaval that the world is experiencing because it's just a reflection of the extremes that our own consciousness is expressing right now. And so the world is going through extremes because the human consciousness is really pushing the boundaries of good and evil rather than coming to the center. But this too is needed because until we don't kind of touch those opposites, in fact, we really don't quite know where it is that we're trying to go. And even he who is looking only towards the good eventually realizes that there are no absolutes in duality. That everybody who is good has enough bad in them. And if not expressing right now in this moment, it expresses in some other way. You've got all these things, especially about Bollywood. Some people saying, oh, this is the best person in the world. <laughs> Another group of people saying, oh, for the same person, he's the worst person in the world. And the truth lies perfectly somewhere in the middle, is that he's got both going on in him, just as we have both going on in us. Um, maybe this is a good place to stop. Right after this, Krishna starts to give us some more specifics about meditation. He's establishing here, of course, again, kind of bringing from what he's already talked about outwardly, how we're living, how that renunciation, how our even-mindedness is being expressed. And then he now takes it into where the yogi's part begins, where he then takes the energy that he has um, freed up through his renunciation and where is he now directing that life force and how does he do that? Mm -hmm. I really liked that word that uh, Krishna was sharing at the beginning, methodology. And I'm a little concerned nowadays because everything is given to us so easily. We are at home, we don't need sometimes even to get dressed to go to the office because everything is um, Zoom. 
uh, all the courses, spiritual courses we want to attend, we can easily do them at home at our own time. Everything we want to access to, we can easily do it from home. And my only concern is that we are not putting enough energy out. Mm -hmm. We are receiving, we are satisfying certain things um, in, with our intellect, but we are so comfortable in the process. And the fact that we cannot go out to the office and we cannot interact with our people and we cannot put into practice as often as we used to when everything was normal uh, makes me think that our willpower is not developed as much as we should and is a key ingredient for success on the spiritual path. So right now, what can be the vehicle, the practice, the technique that will help us to develop that willpower? And I think the techniques that are being given to us in meditation. I'm also um, afraid that since everything is so comfortable and we are just free-flowing, doing and adjusting our schedule in the way we want, we are doing the same with our meditation practices. We are skipping the process of what it means to practice Hong So for that specific time, that length, without skipping your Hong So. Are we practicing our energization exercises because we have to how they have been taught to us or are we only doing four of them? And are we even doing them with all our willpower? Are we practicing our Kriya technique with our full concentration, one Kriya at a time? Are our eyes always uplifted is our spine is always straight or are we moving so are we using the methodology or are we even skipping that in our practices so i would like to emphasize especially this week to concentrate on the methodology of meditation the scientific aspects involved even physically one of the things that i have become more aware in my meditation that i used to skip as long as my spine is straight and my gaze is uplifted is to make sure that my heart is completely open and just very recently since the past few months i have made emphasis in my physical heart, my position, my chest be slightly more open than usual and try to feel the energy flowing upward. So whatever you think you are skipping in your meditation, perhaps it's time now to come back to the essentials, to the basics of your physical body, your position, come back to perhaps for a week, the, and, and give emphasis to the technical aspect of your practices and make sure that through that you are exercising 
some sort of willpower that you are not putting throughout the day. So use your meditation to um, uh, train that muscle of willingness and willpower and self-discipline that come by not just meditation but practicing the techniques as your guru has been given to you. So I'm going to leave it like that. For some of you will be giving more emphasis to the spine or moving physically less or perhaps making emphasis that your gaze is always uplifted and for one week that's what you want to concentrate. For other people, maybe, you know, to make sure that for seven minutes I'm going to practice Hong so no matter what. For other people, might be to practice, you know, 12 Kriyas in every meditation and making sure, you know, that I'm practicing it correctly. So introduce, emphasize the technical aspect of it because it really helps. If you become strong in that, then eventually your meditation will be more intuitively. But don't skip that process because there is a power that comes, that can be developed by practicing the techniques as taught.